morning, West Shore. As uh, Ken mentioned before, my name is Matt Luloyan. I serve as one of the pastors at Liberty Church, just up uh, 15 from you guys here. And uh, let me just say that it was just uh, a real gift to hear you sing uh, over me. I, I needed the truths of those songs, particularly that last one uh, that you sang, that we sang together this morning. And it was just a real gift to be able to sit up here at the front and hear so many voices uh, sing those truths over me. So thank you for doing that. Um, that's actually just kind of how I wanted to start this morning, just to express some gratitude to this church uh, and to all of you who are, are part of this church. Some of you have been part of this church for many years. Uh, it's been great uh, to get to know Trent for the past seven or eight years. Uh, we share some, some Texas campus ministry subculture experiences. Uh, we were both uh, part of and, and in leadership of respective chapters of a Christian fraternity, because that's a thing in Texas. Uh, he was at A&M, of course, and I was at TCU. We didn't overlap any of our time there, but we got some, some shared funny experiences uh, from that. Uh, but I, I have an immense amount of respect for your pastor, uh, for Trent, and for his leadership. Uh, and as a fellow pastor uh, who, who myself knows the real value of a sabbatical, just, a, just an extended opportunity to disconnect and step away, I just want to say thank you for providing that for him uh, and for Amanda and for their kids um, that is a gift to them and their family. What I also hope that you find in time is that it's also a gift to you. Uh, the, the, the benefit of having a pastor who gets to just be a, a human being before the face of God, a husband, a father with his family, to step away from the, the pressures of the roles of pastoral ministry. He'll come back, God willing, with just a, a renewed, reinvigorated uh, sense of, of the reality of God, and that'll just be a blessing to you uh, and your whole, your whole church. In addition to Trent, there, there are a number of people in ministries uh, that I personally and the church I pastor have benefited from. Uh, we've been really blessed by some of the counselors that you work with here at West Shore, so thank you uh, for that. We've been able to partner together for a number of years now in ministering to refugees and uh, have learned a lot from you guys in the ways you have, have done that for many years. Uh, in particular, and I got to, to thank her in person during the, the nine o'clock service, but I just wanted to say thanks to Renee Blanchard uh, she has just been an incredible gift to me and to multiple people in our church. Uh, her experiential wisdom, and I know some of that's your collective experiential wisdom, uh, to help us figure out how to do some local initiatives for mercy and justice ministries, uh, particularly as it pertains to coming alongside foster and adoptive families. Uh, Renee's just been phenomenal uh, in that regard. And so uh, a huge thanks to her as well. And it struck me this week, uh, just preparing to, to spend this time with you this morning, that one of the most beautiful things about the kingdom of God is that at the end of the day, Jesus has one church. Amen? At the end of the day, Jesus has one church. Uh, like Paul says in Ephesians, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And we get to share in that together. And so whether we've ever met or not before, whether you've ever heard of Liberty Church or not, by being part of West Shore, uh, you have been and you are being a blessing to many people beyond the walls here. So thank you for that. When Trent shared uh, that you guys were gonna be walking through this People of Faith series, my mind immediately went back to a series that our church did about five years ago called The Mothers of Jesus. The Mothers of Jesus. In chapter one of, of Matthew's gospel, we get this genealogy of Jesus Christ. And among all the names that Matthew records for us there are the names of five women. 
as you start to look at each of those women and their stories, you come to find pretty quickly, most of them were racial outsiders. They were not Israelites. They were not descendants of Abraham. Most of them were moral outsiders. Their lives and their stories were, were filled with scandal and different kinds of sin. And as women, they were gender outsiders. Women, historically, were rarely, if ever, included in a genealogy, especially women like this. And yet, there they are in Jesus' genealogy. It's a really powerful picture of the outside entering in. The outside entering in, which really is the story of Jesus, is it not? His incarnation is the ultimate outside entering in. The Son of God who is holy, like we just sang about, holy is the Lord, holy and other, leaves the glories of heaven to make his dwelling among us. And he does that from a human standpoint, not only through the line of Adam and Abraham and David, but through other outsiders, like these five women, who enter into and then play this major role in the story of God's redemption. And what that means for you and me, who otherwise would forever be outsiders ourselves, that we now can also enter into the kingdom of God. And we can become not only part of the kingdom of God, but part of God's ongoing work as he seeks to reconcile the world to himself. So this morning, we're just going to get to look at one of these women in Jesus' genealogy. Her name is Rahab. Some of you might be familiar with her story. And we read about her in the book of Joshua, chapter 2. So I'm going to invite you now to listen with open ears to the very words of God. This is Joshua, chapter 2, and I'll start right there in verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath." Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, 
then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house, your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Verse 22, they departed, went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable, would be pleasing in your sight. Oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this through Jesus. Amen. Amen. From the, the life and story of Rahab, we learn that, that when the outside enters in, when God shows up, when God reveals himself, it involves at least these three things. A challenge, a call, and a chance. A challenge, a call, and a chance. First, let's talk about a challenge. And specifically, a challenge to your allegiance. A challenge to your allegiance. This scene here in Joshua 2 begins with Joshua and the Israelite army on the shores of the Jordan River. And they're preparing to, to cross into this land that God had promised to give to Abraham generations before. In Joshua chapter 1, God reaffirms his promise to his people. And the city of Jericho, we find out, is going to be the first city in their path. And so Joshua sends these two spies to investigate. The spies come to Rahab's house. She's a Canaanite. She's a resident of the city of Jericho. We find out pretty quickly she makes her living through prostitution. Her house is something like a hostel where travelers can lodge. And so though it might seem a little bit shady when you first read it, the language the author uses here makes it clear that the spies are not enlisting, shall we say, her professional services while they're there. Her, her house is more like a hostel. It's also something like a tavern where, where the vices of Jericho would, would certainly be present, but also where people of the city would come to talk and where these spies could, could learn something of the city, about the city and about the people who live there. As this story then progresses, we learn something really important, that though these spies are apparently the first Israelites to visit in a very long time, and though there appear to be no worshipers of God in the city of Jericho, the people of Jericho already do know something about God. They already do know something 
about God. Look again at verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. This is actually something that was, was prophesied a long time earlier. In Exodus chapter 15, when God delivers the Israelites from the Egyptians at the Red Sea, they sing this song of victory. They sing this song of celebration known as the, the Song of Moses. And in that song, they prophesy that because of God's salvation, the fear of God is gonna melt the hearts of the inhabitants of the land. Well, now fast forward about 40 years, and that is coming to pass. Rahab and the residents of Jericho have heard about this. And as verse 11 says, it has melted their hearts with fear. It's melted their hearts with fear. God has already begun to make himself known in Jericho via the stories of Egypt, via the stories of the wilderness. And that serves as a really important reminder to us that God is always at work in a place before you or I ever arrive. God is always at work before you and I ever show up, before West Shore Free Church ever existed, before Liberty Church ever existed, God was already here in the Harrisburg region of central Pennsylvania. God was already present and working across this state and across this nation. Though we carry great responsibility and great opportunity to live and speak and serve as, as the people of God in his world, God is always going before us to accomplish his purposes. And as God then reveals himself to Rahab, as he makes himself known to the people of Jericho, that revelation comes with a challenge to their allegiance. It always does. It always does. In other words, in light of what you now know about God, to whom will you swear allegiance? To whom will you swear allegiance? I just would invite you to put yourself in, in Rahab's shoes for a minute. Whenever this news about God, you know, what he's done at the Red Sea, what he's done in the wilderness, whenever that first arrives in Jericho, this challenge to her allegiance begins. Should she continue on as if nothing has changed? Or should this alter her understanding of the world and her place in it? And then this, this big moment, the most costly moment of, of the challenge comes when these spies show up in her home. Now, evidently, these are some of the worst spies in the history of the world because immediately after they arrive, they're discovered. So I don't know what like the ancient Near Eastern equivalent is of like the, 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 the plastic glasses and mustache nose disguise, but like that's kind of how I picture these spies. Like they show up and like five seconds later, they're discovered that they're spies. And that news reaches the king of Jericho and he immediately sends to, to apprehend them. And now Rahab really has to pick. Will she commit treason against Jericho, her home, the people she's lived among her entire life, everything she's known, or will she remain loyal to Jericho and thereby reject the rule and the reign of God? In the midst of all the, the gray areas and the ambiguity that we experience in life, it is often helpful to see it and to state it this bluntly. As human beings, we are always swearing allegiance to some ruler and committing treason against another. We are always swearing allegiance to one ruler and committing treason against another. That's actually what it means to be a worshiper, to devote ourselves to something. That's what it means to be one who repents, who turns away from one thing and turns toward another. 
Most of us would, would prefer to think there was some kind of Swiss option, perpetual neutrality. But ultimately, there, there is no such option. Ultimately, there is no neutrality. Now, in Rahab's story, a, a lot of attention gets focused on her deception and whether or not that means it's okay for, for you and I to lie in certain situations, like the, the ends of her lying justify the means. A couple of things on that. For one, this is a descriptive text, uh, not a prescriptive one. So it's describing what, what happened historically. It's not telling you to emulate everything that's happening in the story. So we should always be cautious. We should always be really slow to draw any moral or ethical directives from descriptive texts in our Bible, in our scriptures. But then number two, the focus of Rahab's lies and deception in this passage is actually not on the morality of it. Like the author is less concerned with, is that okay or is that not okay? The focus is on how her allegiance has changed. So as she is lying to the king's men, and she is lying, what does she say? Look at verse four. I didn't know where they were from. And verse five, I don't know where they went. But then moments later in verse nine, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. So her certainty, her loyalty, her allegiance has changed. That's the point and, and the emphasis of her lies in this text. She's now uncertain and disloyal to her own people and her own city precisely because she's become certain that this God is real and that he has given this land to his people. The specifics are, are certainly different. You and I are not, are not Rahab. But when God reveals himself to you, when God shows up in your life, we face a similar challenge to our allegiance. And this is the question for each of us. When God makes himself known, am I willing to part with all that I've known for the promise of something truer and better? When God makes himself known to me, am I willing to part with everything I've known for the promise of something truer and better? And let's not pretend for for a second that that's easy. Because as some of you guys know, more than I know, it's incredibly costly to become a traitor to your former way of life in order to be loyal to God. At times, that, that costs us relationships. Sometimes it costs us money or reputation. It always costs our comfort. It always costs us the easy road. It always costs us some opportunities. But like Rahab, you cannot remain neutral forever. You have to make a decision about who you're going to follow and who you're going to betray. Just as in the starting point, just as the story with Rahab, the, the starting point is to consider what God has revealed about himself. I really appreciate how Tim Keller once put it. He wrote, you begin with Christ, not by adopting an ethic, nor turning over a new leaf, nor even by joining a community. No, you begin by believing the report about what has happened in history. You begin by believing the report about what has happened in history. And so for any of you who are here this morning and not sure what you believe, and maybe this is even describing you, you you've been on the fence about this for a long time. You've tried to remain neutral for a long time. You've tried not to ruffle any feathers for a long time. I would say to you that this morning presents you with a moment 
like Rahab experienced when the king's men were on the way to her house. The scriptures for generations, for over a couple thousand years, have made the audacious claim that God the Son, Jesus Christ, took on flesh to dwell among us. And that he did that in order to live a perfect life that we could not, to die a substitutionary death in our place, and then to rise from the dead. Set aside for just a moment the morality and the ethics of Christianity. Set aside for just a second the difficult questions you're probably wrestling with and and most likely will wrestle with for the rest of your life. If this claim about Jesus is true, then the only fitting response is to change your allegiance. It's to commit treason against the life that you have known and at whatever the cost it might entail to swear allegiance to him. Like Rahab, you don't have to know everything, and you won't, and you can't know everything. You don't have to be certain about everything. But for all that you don't know, do you know that God entered into the world to redeem us from sin? Can you believe the report about what has happened in history? Let this good news challenge your allegiance and lead you to become loyal to the one true God. Second, Second, let's talk about a call. Because Rahab's life doesn't just point us to this challenge, it also points us to a call. And in particular, a call to courageous faith and courageous works. If you're familiar with the book of Joshua, I'm guessing we have a range in the room of familiarity with different parts of the Bible, but if you're familiar with the book of Joshua, who's the primary example of courage that most quickly comes to mind in this book? Joshua. Yeah, it's not a trick question. Not trying to set you up. Right? He got the book named after him. He's the primary example in this book of courageous faith and courageous works. In chapter one, God calls Joshua to be strong and courageous. Like if you've memorized any part of the book of Joshua, it's a, I'm sure it's that verse in Joshua one. Be strong and courageous. For the rest of the book then, he's the one leading the Israelites into the promised land. But it's fascinating to me that immediately after this focus on Joshua in chapter one, in chapter two, the attention completely shifts away from him and onto a Canaanite woman. See, Joshua is only in this chapter, chapter two, at the very beginning and the very end. And these two spies that feature prominently, they're unnamed. We never get a name for them. For all of chapter two, the story is centered on Rahab. She becomes the example, she becomes the counterpart to Joshua's courage. There are, and I'm sure you've recognized this already, a couple glaring differences between Joshua and Rahab. Joshua is a righteous Israelite male. The obvious choice, right? The obvious choice to lead the people after Moses' death. Rahab, on the other hand, is a gender outsider, a racial outsider, and a moral outsider. She is a female Canaanite prostitute. These two people could not be more different from one another. And yet, at the beginning of the story of Israel's conquest of the land, they are the two people that are held up as the examples of courageous faith and courageous works. Now, here's the point. Regardless of who you are, regardless of how obvious or obscure a candidate you might feel like you are, When the outside enters in, when God reveals himself, when God shows up in your life, it comes with a call to courage. Joshua is going to lead Israel out of the wilderness and into the land. 
But Rahab is going to lead her Canaanite family out of Jericho and get this, ultimately right into the family line of the Savior of the world. Now, in addition to, to the book of Joshua, Rahab is, is mentioned in Scripture three different times. Uh, one, which I mentioned a little while ago, is in the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel, that genealogy of, of Jesus. The other two references for, to Rahab come in Hebrews chapter 11 and James chapter 2. And I think we've got slides for these, so just listen to these two verses. This is Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And then James chapter 2, starting in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Hebrews 11 is known as the hall of faith. It's this place in scripture where we get these incredible examples of men and women that have gone before us and been men and women of courage, examples of courageous faith and works. James 2 is also a pretty famous passage about how faith without works is dead. Rahab shows up in both. I know I'm kind of like a Bible nerd. This is kind of my thing, but that's incredible to me. Of all the people that might show up in those two places, Rahab shows up in both. She is an example of both courageous faith and courageous works. Rahab is, is a woman of faith. She hears this report about the God of Israel and what he's doing, and she believes. It's a costly faith. It's treason, as we've said, against her own people as she puts her faith in God. But she, of all people, maybe in this whole book, but certainly in this chapter, makes the clearest profession of faith when she says here in verse 11, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. He is God. Perhaps you noticed also as we read this, her faith inspires more faith among the people of Israel. Through Rahab's report, you know, that the, the hearts of the people are melting with fear, and then through her practical help, the faith of these spies is, is strengthened. At the beginning of the book of Joshua, God says to Joshua, hey, I'm giving you this land. Get ready, go in. At the end of chapter two, though, verse 24, the spies say to Joshua, truly, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Like we might've believed it when God said it, but now that Rahab has said it, we really believe it. And their faith, the faith of the spies, no doubt, that strengthens Joshua's faith, which in turn strengthens the faith of the people as they soon after this cross over the Jordan River and begin to take possession of, of the land. Now, furthermore, like all genuine faith, Rahab's faith is inseparable from works, from courageous action. And so she doesn't just say she believes in this, this God that she's heard about, but she welcomes the spies and she hides them and she protects them and she ensures their safe return. So her faith in the one true God is demonstrated by her willingness to put her own life on the line in these moments. And so just based on Rahab's example this morning, I want to ask you, where do you need to respond with more courage in your life? Where do you need to respond with more courage in your life? Maybe it's the courage to 
to love somebody who's really difficult for you to love. And we're kind of at the start of summer break now, and we have vacations maybe planned coming up. Maybe this person is even part of your family, and you're going to see them sometime in the coming weeks, and you're kind of dreading that. Maybe courage for you today, this week, is going to look like, how do I love this person that's really hard for me to love? Maybe it's the courage to forgive someone who's really hurt you. Or maybe it's the courage to ask forgiveness from someone who has really done, done wrong by you. Maybe it's the courage to, to finally step into a hard situation. And you've kind of been perceiving that there's a difficult situation either in your own life and family or in the life of a friend, and you've just not wanted to touch it because you know it's going to be costly, you know it's going to be messy. Maybe it's courage to finally step in. Maybe it's time to, to actually deal with what's broken in your own marriage. Maybe it's time to actually ask for help and address the addiction that you are experiencing. Or it's time to finally address the ongoing sin pattern that you've just kind of, kind of embraced because it's so hard to fight against. And you've just kind of given up. Maybe it's the courage to, to not laugh along at jokes that aren't funny. Maybe it's the courage to say that something's wrong when everyone else seems to just find to kind of go along with it. Maybe it's the courage to hold a conviction that is not popular or culturally acceptable. Because can we be honest? If we are trying to be faithful to Jesus Christ and to what he's revealed to us, many of the things, the convictions that we hold are not going to be culturally popular or acceptable. They're not. And I want to say to all of you in the room this morning, but I especially want to say to the young people in the room this morning, your whole life, your whole life is going to be a call to courage. It is going to be a call to courage. You're going to have to find a way today and in all the days of your life that follow to, to not accept, to not accept this, this, this grid that society would put on you and say you hate people and you're bigoted because you hold these convictions. You're going to have to have the courage to say, I love you, I love people, but I cannot affirm everything I want you, and what you want me to affirm about your life. And that, you're going to have to do that every single day for the rest of your life, and that's going to take a lot of courage. See from the example of Rahab that when God enters into history, when God enters into your life, it comes with a call to courageous faith and to courageous works. And maybe this morning you, you're sitting back and thinking, okay, I'm, I'm maybe a little bit more like Joshua. Maybe you're someone who is an obvious choice, natural leader, someone who's been singled out, maybe already in your life for different public opportunities, public positions, recognition. Maybe this morning, though, you're, you're more like Rahab, an unlikely choice, an outsider. Maybe you feel like that, someone who has a much messier past or messier present. Either way, the call of God upon your life is a call to courage. It's a call to respond in each moment as it comes and say, in this moment, I will trust in the one true God. In this moment, I will act in line with his truth and his love and his grace and his promises. And in this moment, I will watch for how my courage becomes an incredible part of God's work to rescue and redeem this world. Because that's the third thing that Rahab's life points to. Not only a challenge, not only a call, but third, a chance. 
a chance to become a delivered deliverer. A delivered deliverer. In Joshua chapter 2, it's actually kind of hard to tell who's rescuing who. It's a little bit of a chicken-in-the-egg scenario. On the one hand, Rahab is rescuing these spies from certain death. But at the very same time, the Israelites are rescuing Rahab and her family from the otherwise total destruction of the city. So it's not a one-directional, one-sided kind of rescue. And it, and it leaves some interesting rhetorical questions on the table for you and me. Like, if the spies didn't come, would Rahab have ever had an opportunity to be rescued? Would Rahab ever become part of Jesus' family tree? Or if Rahab didn't hide these spies so that they could return with their report, would Joshua and would Israel have actually had the courage to proceed with the conquest of Canaan? Like, I don't know if you're familiar with their story in the wilderness. Their record isn't awesome. Like, they, they kept rebelling against God over and over again. <clears throat> Excuse me. It, it's not, there's nothing to say that they wouldn't have done that again here and stopped short on the other side of the Jordan River and not entered in. But what this mutual rescue shows us is that behind all of the human action in this story is the God of deliverance. The God of deliverance. God is the one who delivers people from death. And what's more, that the people of God get to become delivered deliverers. They get to become rescued rescuers. There are some really loud echoes of the Passover in this story in Joshua chapter 2. A generation earlier, when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, God sent them, set them free by bringing judgment upon Egypt, the, the 10 different plagues that we read about in Exodus. And at that 10th one in particular, as God was doing this, his judgment passed over the Israelites as the blood of a lamb was painted on their doorposts. And so when the spies here tell Rahab, hey, when this city falls, when the judgment of God begins to unfold around you, stay inside your house and put something blood-colored in the window. That's an echo of the Passover. Rahab believed and was delivered. And then from the family line of this outsider, comes the savior of the world, the deliverer, Jesus Christ. Generations later, Jesus will enter in and he will fulfill what that Passover promised. The lamb of God, not just a lamb, the lamb of God will shed his blood so that God's judgment against our sin might pass over us. Amen? Jesus is our deliverance. He is the one who saves us from the otherwise doomed, otherwise judged, otherwise condemnation-ridden Jericho that is this world. God will deliver his people from judgment. And then this is the incredible thing. Those he delivers get to become part of his ongoing deliverance of others. For so many people in our culture, both who, who already are Christians, claim to know and claim to follow Jesus, and those who are not, a major misconception about the Christian life is that following Jesus is all about the rules and the obligations and the restrictions, things that seem like they would hinder joy or, or keep us from experiencing the most that life has to offer. And no doubt that there are obligations, there are commands, there are restrictions that come with a faithful allegiance to God. That is part of it. But if this morning 
If, if, if that's all that you think this is, if that's all you see about the Christian life, you are missing out on the beauty of what the story of God offers you. That as God delivers you from sin and death, you get to become part of his ongoing work of deliverance in this world. If today the Christian life appears boring to you or empty or joyless, that could be for a lot of different reasons. I don't mean to flatten this out and say this is the only reason. There could be a lot of reasons behind that. But perhaps, perhaps it's because you're failing to perceive the chance you have to use your life for the sake of God's deliverance in this world. This morning, I would consider, I would invite you to consider how God might work his deliverance through you. Through you. In your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, in this region, certainly, whether you're aware of it or not, are a lot of people in all kinds of bondage. All kinds of bondage to addictions, subjected to verbal and physical and sexual and other kinds of abuse, people who are in poverty, people who are being trafficked, any number of other things. And beneath all of those things is the spiritual bondage that all of us face left to ourselves, the spiritual bondage of sin. But this is the deliverance that we're celebrating this morning and the deliverance that we get to celebrate every time Jesus' church gathers together, that Jesus Christ entered into a world of enslaved people like you and me in order to set us free. In order to set us free. Men and women, as you have been delivered, use your life to advance the deliverance of God in this world. Invite other people to believe the report about what has happened in history to put their faith, to put their trust in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Maybe you're someone who will get to see visible, powerful, tangible displays of God's deliverance through, through you. No doubt in my mind, that's gonna be some of your stories in this room. You're gonna get to see visible, tangible, powerful displays of that. Others of us, maybe not. It might just be a long lifetime of faithfulness and doing those right things, even if we don't see visible results. Here's the thing, if your allegiance is to the God of heaven and earth, if you respond to God's call with courageous faith and courageous work, your life and your labors will never be in vain. Never be in vain. So like Rahab, may you know the freedom of God's deliverance and may your life advance his deliverance of this world through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen, let me pray for us. Father, it's incredible to me, and I pray that you would restore the awe to all of us in this room this morning, that we get to use our life for this, that we who would otherwise forever be outsiders by our own immorality, by not being born to the right family, whatever other ways we feel like outsiders, that you have allowed us through the work of Jesus to enter in and become part of your family, but not only be part of it, as you sweep us up into your work, into your family, you then Use us for your ongoing deliverance of this world. Would you just renew our awe that we get to use our life for something so worthy as that? And would you give us the courage that we need today and each day to respond with faith, to respond with works, to be your people in this time and place? We are desperate for your grace. We are desperate for the ongoing guidance and power and leading of your spirit. We want to be your faithful people in this world. We are thankful, Jesus, that you have brought us into your people. You have made us that. 
And we ask now for the grace to be delivered, delivered deliverers. We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen.